Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Did you ever imagine having your favorite attending physician from your fellowship, your true mentor, come see you in practice a few years later and spend the day meeting your patients? That unusual experience occurred recently when Dr. Sandy Swain traveled to meet with Dr. Nilama Dendaluri, a 2006 graduate of the NCI Medical Oncology Fellowship Program, and I met with these physicians right after they met with a number of Dr. Dendalori's patients with breast cancer, the focus of her practice. The first patient was right out of the fellowship textbooks, a postmenopausal woman with an ER-positive HER2-negative tumor, in this case, a 2.1-centimeter lesion with one sentinel node that was positive microscopically, as described by Dr. Dendalori. This is a 65-year-old woman who has been on exogenous hormone replacement therapy for seven years, underwent routine mammography, was found to have a right breast abnormality, underwent a core biopsy, which showed a poorly differentiated carcinoma that was ER greater than 95%, PR negative, HER2 2-plus by IHC, and negative by FISH. She went on to have a lumpectomy, Her sentinel lymph node was positive for tumor cells. Therefore, she underwent a axillary lymph node dissection. And when they went back and looked at the sentinel node, they saw micrometastases. And the other six lymph nodes were negative. Therefore, she came in to discuss systemic therapy recommendations. She was very reluctant to stop the hormonal therapy because she was very worried about what estrogen deprivation would do for her body. She also has osteopenia, and she's had TMJ problems in the past when she's tried to stop hormone replacement therapy. She stopped it at that time after an extensive discussion. So we talked to her about systemic chemotherapy, and she underwent oncotype testing And she was found to have a recurrence score of 36. Wow. Which predicts for about a 25% 10-year distant risk of recurrence with hormonal therapy alone. So therefore, we obviously recommended chemotherapy because she has minimal comorbidities other than the osteopenia. And I think this case is really interesting because if you look at she has competing risk factors. She's very, very ER positive, though PR negative, and then a poorly differentiated tumor on histology, so a higher grade. So she has some things that are good, some things that aren't so good. So I don't think you can really predict exactly what her recurrence score or what her prognosis was by just those factors. So I think the recurrence score really helped a lot. Her tumor was negative for lymphovascular invasion, for example. And this micromet was really small. I mean, she just had a few cells, though they were positive by H&E. And as you know, the patients with micromets, looking at their SEER data and then looking at some JCO data, does show that the patients that have the micromets do have an intermediate prognosis between node negative and node positive. And in a recent JCO paper, those patients who, even though it wasn't a randomized study, but those patients that had micromets and that got chemotherapy seemed to do better than those that had micromets that didn't. So there is data supporting a benefit from chemotherapy in patients like this. But if you didn't have the oncotype, you might say, well... It's very ER positive. She's postmenopausal. It's just a tiny, you know, couple cells. Maybe we just could treat her with hormonal therapy. But I think that it was clear when the 
recurrent score came back at 36, that she has a proliferative tumor that should respond well or should have good effect from adjuvant chemotherapy. And it also helped in talking to her. She's a very anxious lady and asked lots of questions and a lot of detailed questions. And I think if we hadn't had the recurrent score to talk to her about it, it might have been harder to convince her that she needed chemotherapy, whereas in this case, it's pretty clear. I mean, it's not controversial that you would recommend chemotherapy for her. What was her, before she got back the oncotype, sort of her thoughts about chemotherapy? She did not want any systemic therapy, whether it was hormonal therapy, whether it was chemotherapy. She also wanted a five-day radiation, accelerated partial breast irradiation. Basically, she wanted to do you know, as little as possible. But with the Oncotype score, it really solidified our recommendations that she did need systemic therapy. And I think she really, as I said, she's a very smart lady. And so she saw the numbers and saw the potential benefit. And really, when I saw her today, was totally convinced that chemotherapy was the right thing for her, though, as she said, of course, she didn't want it, but she knows that it really will benefit her. So I think that that was one of the really beauties of having that test for her because we could be more clear, whereas in many cases it's not so black and white. She saw another oncologist before she saw me who told her she probably won't need chemotherapy, you know, in conjunction with her wishes. So again, I think that Oncotype kind of solidified for her that she did need more aggressive therapy. What about choice of chemotherapy? She hasn't been started yet or where is she right now with that? She's starting next week, actually. And we went through various regimens with her, including CMF, because she asked about that, as it was the regimen that was used with the original NSABP studies. We also talked with her about the third-generation regimens, such as dose-dense or TAC. And what we decided on, though, was docetaxel and cyclophosphamide every three weeks for four cycles. And because of her age, I am giving her primary prophylaxis with pegfilgrastim. It was really interesting in talking with her because she knew about CMF, not only because of the oncotype results, because that's what the regimen that was used there, but her previous opinion had suggested maybe using CMF. So we went through the logistical regression, basically, of CMF is equal to AC and TC is better than AC. So... I think she was pretty convinced by that when we talked to her about it, but she was very concerned about leukemia risk. It was interesting how some patients pick up on some things, and I've had a lot of patients I've talked to about leukemia, and they don't. it really just kind of goes by them, and cardiac toxicity seems to be more of an issue. But for her, leukemia just really made her you know, sit up and think about it, so she asked a lot about risk with a TC with leukemia. And as far as I know, I don't even think any cases of leukemia have been reported with TC. Certainly with cytoxin, you can get leukemia. So there certainly is some risk and it's going to be very low, but I'd say it's lower than what would be with CMF because more cytoxin is given with CMF. So we talked to her about that too. Well, during her last visit, she was very worried about the cardiotoxicity as well because she had Googled doxorubicin. And this time, you know, she was very worried about the leukemia risk, as Sandy said. Sandy, how would you have thought through this same woman's situation, the same human being, if she had a gross node positive or a couple of nodes? Would you still be thinking about an oncotype? I, you know, the data, and she is postmenopausal, but the data looking at oncotype and node positive 
women are in postmenopausal women in the Albane data and about 300 patients in the trans attack data do suggest that those patients that have a low risk score don't benefit from chemotherapy. But because their recurrence is so high when they have positive nodes, and I know it's 40% in the Albane data, though that's all recurrences, not just distant recurrences. But since the risk is so much higher in node positive patients, I have personally not gotten Oncotype in all patients that have node positive disease. And I've really cherry picked. It's mostly patients, number one, that I might think about using neoadjuvant chemotherapy in, or in patients that I really think need chemotherapy, but aren't convinced that they need it, or patients that I'm not sure they need it or not for some reason, or patients that may have some comorbidities. So I've done it a few times, but I really haven't gotten it in all patients with node positive disease. So if she had had grossly positive nodal disease, I wouldn't have ordered it. How about you, Neilama? So in someone like her who had a poorly differentiated tumor that was progesterone receptor negative, that wasn't especially a small tumor, if she had a gross node, I'm not sure I would have ordered it. However, in a postmenopausal woman, even though the grade isn't an exact correlation with the oncotype, if all of the other factors such as the estrogen and progesterone receptors being high from a good pathology lab, HER2 negative, obviously, and a small tumor with one positive lymph node and they had a good dissection. I do talk to women about that. As long as we're talking about that controversial issue, Neeloma, maybe you can just briefly comment on your patient in her late 30s whom you had scheduled to come in today but had to cancel at the last minute. She had one of seven lymph nodes positive, small tumor, ERPR were both greater than 90%, HER2 was negative, and we did an oncotype in her after an extensive discussion, letting her know that in a 38-year-old premenopausal woman, while we may have prognostic data, we have no predictive data regarding chemotherapy benefit in her, and her recurrence score came back at 14. Hmm. So what did she decide to do? She opted not to undergo chemotherapy. You know, I don't know. People talk about, well, you know, if you have an, a young patient with a definitely positive node, you know, you wouldn't think about doing a recurrent score or holding chemo. But I mean, Sandy, we know that not everybody with no positive disease benefit from chemo. As you know, in Europe, one of the standard treatments for premenopausal women with ER positive disease, whether it's node positive or negative, is ovarian ablation and tamoxifen. So clearly hormonal therapy is going to benefit these patients. And we have just in the United States pretty much switched to chemotherapy for all these patients. And a trial was attempted to be done by ECOG many years ago, comparing the two things, chemo through to ovarian ablation. I think that's really where the answer would be. There have been several trials that have looked at that, showing that there's probably equivalence, not with our standard chemotherapy that we use now with CMF and other agents like that. So I think it's very reasonable. I think we over-treat with chemotherapy and the ovarian ablation data that have been done show a benefit. The B30 data that I presented showed that amenorrhea was associated with a benefit. So I really think that it's probably okay, but we are all very nervous because they're young and survival's actually improved in young women. So we don't really want to take away something that we have associated with a good benefit to patients. So I even though I've said all these things, I still do give chemotherapy to most of these patients. So, Sandy, this lady had a HER2 2-plus tumor by IHC, fish negative, and 
True or false, at some point in the near future, a patient like this will be eligible for an NSABP trial you all are about to do, looking at chemo plus or minus trastuzumab. Yes, we are doing that, NSABP B47, and it was going to be just TC, the taxotere cytoxin, plus or minus Herceptin, but now there's going to be another, a choice with an anthracycline-containing regimen, plus or minus Herceptin, and it's based on... Well, the eligibility are those patients who have HER2 one or two plus tumors. And it's based on the data that Soon Paik has generated and actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine as a letter. And I don't know how many people saw that because it was a letter. And the data was on a couple of hundred patients who had had their blocks submitted to the central office, to the central pathology lab that were said to be HER2 positive, but in his review, Soon Paik's review were HER2 negative. And in that group, even in those patients who were HER2 negative by central review, they did have a benefit from Herceptin. That was looked at actually by several other pathologists. The NCI required that, and they actually corroborated his data. So we are going to do a large study in patients with HER2 1 or 2 plus disease with Herceptin. What about the choice of hormonal therapy? And this lady already has a history of HRT and a number of what seem to be sort of endocrine issues. Well, one of the other interesting aspects in this case was that she has a history of osteopenia and it's been on Fosamax for a while. And also, as was mentioned, was on hormonal replacement therapy. So she's on estrogen, Fosamax, and still had a, she said, osteopenia. So she's also very concerned about that. She's a thin, small woman and has severe osteoporosis in her family. So that was a major concern of her. So I think that that's something that really needs to be discussed with her and she needs a bone density to see where she is with that. And she might be the kind of patient that I would even consider using tamoxifen in rather than using an AI because of her extreme concern about bone loss and fear about bone loss and fear of the morbidities from fractures, knowing that tamoxifen can prevent that and stabilize bone density and that there's not really a survival benefit in most of the studies with AI versus TAM. So, and we talked to her about that. Actually, we talked to her about a lot of things, but that I think Neelam is going to have a long discussion with her after or maybe after a couple of cycles of chemotherapy and have her meet with the endocrinologist to assess all those things to see where she really is with her bone. And the other consideration would be changing her from Fosamex to IV Zomata, not necessarily for the cancer treatment, but more for prevention of bone loss or stabilizing her bone. Any thoughts about denosumab, another bone-targeted agent, the rank ligand inhibitor that has been studied? Where do you think that's heading? And do you think for a patient like this in the future, maybe that's going to be a consideration? I think it would be a great consideration for her because the choices are pretty limited. We can, you know, use Zomato, which I think is good. And I think that it should be a consideration in her. But Usually what happens is they eventually have worsening of their bone, and denosinab is a very good choice because it's used sub-Q and not that often, whereas the other choices like Forteo, which is a daily, I think, sub-Q injection, which is very difficult for patients to give themselves, and so the other choices are pretty limited. So I think denosinab is exciting, and hopefully it'll be approved sometime in the next year for prevention of fractures.